everyone, I'm Oli and you're listening to Wild Research Bites podcast field edition. For today's episode, I interview Dr. Lisa Leroux, uh, who has big extensive field experience from Shushluwe Park. She is a postdoctoral researcher at Nelson Mandela University here in South Africa. And she's been working with trophic cascades, fear of predation and mega herbivores. Without further ado, let's welcome Lisa. Cool. Thank you, Lisa, for coming and willing to be interviewed by me for this episode of podcast. And now in the beginning, maybe could you please first tell a little bit about yourself and your research interests and what are you doing in HIP? Hi, Oli. Um, thanks. And thanks for the opportunity. It's nice to be able to chat on your show. Um My name is Lisa Leroux. I am a, a Claude Leon postdoctoral fellow at the Nelson Mandela University in Port Elizabeth in South Africa. Um, and I have been working in Lutlu and Pelosi Park for the past seven years or so. First doing my PhD and then after that um, several postdocs. And at the moment i am i'm the, the postdoc that i'm doing at the moment is is um i would say focused on rhino but specifically looking at how mega herbivores differ um in the way in which they influence the environment i consider myself a community ecologist or a systems ecologist perhaps it's more accurate so i'm interested in how the how everything fits together and how individual pieces in this puzzle have big repercussions for the system as a whole. Cool, thank you very much for that. Uh, that sounds really interesting and also very related to uh, somehow what I'm also studying about rhinos and their influence on the whole ecosystem functioning. Uh, how did you come to start your research in this kind of a topic? What did you, for example, do your PhD on? Um, I would say that Things just develop incrementally, step by step. Your interest uh, changes. When I when I first started my PhD, I was looking at um, how how predators influence nutrient distributions, um, but specifically in in systems where you have multiple species that vary in their vulnerability to predation. So some species that are typical prey species, things like impalas and yalas. Uh, the things that are small enough to be eaten by many different predators, um, but then also species that are generally not eaten, so things like elephants and rhinos that end up being too big to be caught by most of the predators. Um, and the reason why that makes a difference is that the smaller things will respond to this fear, um, and so they don't use the landscape in the same way as the bigger things. So it was for the PhD, I was looking at the indirect effect that predators have by influencing these different herbivore species um, or either influencing some herbivore species while not influencing others. And because the largest herbivores, the mega herbivores, ended up responding to predation so differently and they thereby um, having a different role in how they move nutrients across the landscape, my interest started Uh, to change and focus a lot more on the on the mega herbivores and how apart from the fact that they are not so responsive to predation but how do they differ in other respects um, from the smaller things because it's the larger things that that has been lost from most ecosystems all over the world and that is my interest has started to develop in what 
what were the, the ecosystem repercussions of having lost these large animals? Yeah, and you mentioned that you were working on these mega herbivores for your PhD and how they move the nutrients in the landscape. Uh, can you mention like an example of, for example, white rhinos? How do they actually move these nutrients compared to, for example, impalas? Um, well, if, you, if you're specifically talking about the difference that, that comes about because of their re response or lack of response to predators, then what happens is that in an African savanna where you have vegetation that's very structurally diverse and um, you have areas that are really open and things can see very far, um, and then you have areas that are very dense in vegetation, so it pr provides a lot of opportunity for ambush predators such as lion to sneak up on impala. So particularly with grazing species, they tend to want to stick to the, to the more open areas, places where they can see a predator coming, and then they have time to respond to run away or give some alarm call or uh, whatever response works for that moment. So that means that there's several areas in the landscape that will not be used by these smaller things, or at least used to a lesser extent by these smaller grazers because they avoid the dense areas. So, um, and these dense, denser areas, the areas that are supposedly more um, dangerous to, to the smaller animals, uh, means nothing in terms of risk to, for the larger things like rhino. So rhinos would go into these areas and... Um, both eat but also defecate there. So in terms of how they move nutrients or where they deposit nutrients in the landscape, the smaller things may be accumulating their nutrients in these areas of safety, whereas the larger things um, distribute their, their fecal nutrients in more even fashion across the landscape. So if you are a plant that happens to be growing in an area that is dangerous to an impala, you might be very dependent on something like a rhino to fertilize um, for, for fertilization. And then the other issue is that even though smaller herbivores are, are accumulating within this landscape of fear, accumulating um, fecal nutrients in the safer areas, the, um, the larger things like rhino also accumulate nutrients, but um, because they use middens, so they have a huge accumulation, localized accu accumulation effect. But the middens, the middens themselves are not distributed along a gradient of predation, risk, or fear. So in that sense, on a larger scale, they, they distribute nutrients a lot more evenly than smaller things. Yeah, that's very interesting indeed. And like bigger animals move the nutrients completely different in a completely different fashion compared to smaller herbivores like impala. And as I understand correctly, these middens, are they kind of like concentrations of areas where rhinos come and uh, defecate and urine urinate? Yeah, so a midden, it's, it's like a, it's a latrine. So it's basically like a toilet where the rhinos are, they're using it as a, as a kind of a social cue. So they communicate a lot through these heaps of fecal material, but they oftentimes um, use areas that are on the boundary of territorial males territories and as the territorial male marks in this latrine um, and then steps on it and steps in the uh, fecal material and then they walk the boundary of their territory in that way they are letting everybody know that they this is their territory and this is where the boundary uh, this is where it starts and this is where it stops um, and then the non-territorial males and the females also 
communicate through these middens by leaving their scent. And um, and there's been some research by other researchers showing that I, a lot of information can be transmitted just through, through the smell of fecal material. So information such as whether it's a dominant male or a non-dominant male, I mean, a, a male that holds territory versus a, a subordinate male, or whether it's a female and whether the female is responsive to males or uh, a lot of information can be mm, communicated through these latrines. Yeah, thank you. And then uh, how did you come about approaching this research in practice? What did you do in the field? Did you use cameras or how were you looking at the distribution of the nutrients uh, as mediated by uh, smaller herbivores and the larger herbivores like white rhino? Um, Yeah, so we actually created uh, differences in predation risk or at least hopefully differences in the perception of risk by um, we selected a whole bunch of areas um, and then we uh, cut out woody vegetation so we cleared areas to make it either very visible in the surroundings or not visible at all Um, and then we put trap cameras and we monitored a smallish area of about 10 by 10 meters for a period of two years we, we we looked at which species come to these areas, um, how long do they stay, and what's their behavior while they're there. Um, and then we went back to each of these areas every two weeks and we counted how many piles of dung accumulated on each and, and to whom do the um, dung belong to. So we could see if an area was cleared and it's very visible, we also measured the visibility so we could quantify the relative risk of each of these plots. And then we could see as as the risk increases, so the density of, it, of the woody vegetation is more, the types of species that use it and that stay longer are in general bigger, larger, larger body size species. And then because of that, the type of dung that accumulates in these areas are mostly or predominantly from large species, whereas in the safer areas, there's proportionally more um, um, dung from smaller sized species. Yeah, thank you. That explains it very well. And then like moving away from your research, how has uh, the experience of living here in the park for such a long time been for you? Um, Well, (laughs) it's difficult to describe. It's such a beautiful place and it's it's such a um, an amazing experience and an amazing opportunity to to live in places such as this that I can only describe it as life changing. I suppose um, to be able to I, I loved working on on in science. I I can do it from other places as well, but it's such a privilege to be able to walk outside my office and and see what I'm working on, see the animals and and see their environment and and feeling a part of it. And it's also I would like to think that it it inspires and it and it stimulates the creativity that you can perhaps start to think more like the animal because you're experiencing their landscape in a similar way. Like if I am going out to these plots that I had just been talking about where I'd created this risk, when you're standing in that open area, you feel safer. When you're standing in the thick area, you feel nervous. So it's like you are are able to experience a little bit of what you're working on. And I think that helps um, a lot in your interpretation, but also in your own personal development, I think. 
It's an amazing experience. Yeah, that sounds uh, pretty amazing to be able to step in the shoes of your study animals as well, like you mentioned. Um, now, like towards the end of the interview, what would be like one memorable experience that you gained from the park? Probably there are thousands of them, but can you come up with anything special? Um, yeah, there are thousands. <laughs> it's difficult to suddenly choose one out of so many. Some of the ones that, that now immediately pop into my head is the, the amazing encounters I've had in the field where you're so focused on work and you have this idea of, of what you want to write in a paper and how you're going to analyze and uh, your mind is just almost in in the work and not in the surroundings and then you come across some animal that you haven't seen in ages or or that that you that most people never get to um, experience up close something like a cheetah or a wild dog that's in your site where you're working and and I think the the thing that I that I like most is that that these animals are that I guess that you are becoming part of their their environment um, and you are not sitting in a car which is basically removed from from the animal uh, obviously in terms of safety but also in terms of the animal doesn't experience you so I think it was really amazing to to be able to completely be a part of these animals lives I suppose even if it is in short time periods um, and then there's also obviously been a lot of exciting moments with running into some scary animals but also running into beautiful things and and the smaller things the fact that you can walk out in the field and you can notice fungi and insects and nests and these are the things that you don't experience from a vehicle cool thank you very much lisa for the inspiring note to the end and thank you so much for the interview as well mm -hmm.